Welcome to A Certain Age, a show for women on life after 50 who are unafraid to age out loud. I'm your host, Katie Fogarty. Love has very famously been called a many-splendored thing, which is poetic, yes, but still a little mysterious. What is love? Why do we feel it? How do we find it? Can we maintain it? Do we age out of it? I'm joined today by someone with answers. Dr. Helen Fisher is an anthropologist, human behavior researcher, author, and an expert on love, lust, attraction, attachment, and the biology of why we mate, stay, and stray. I cannot wait to dive in. Welcome, Helen. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. Helen, I'm so excited. All February long on a certain age, we're exploring love, you know, really from a variety of angles. And you wear so many expert hats on this topic. You're the author of several books, including The Anatomy of Love, which looks at the biochemical foundations of love. You do scholarly research, TED Talks, and you're the chief scientific advisor for internet dating site Match.com. So we have a lot of ground to cover. But I want to begin by asking about love in the time of COVID. I know you've done some studies on how the pandemic is affecting dating and intimacy. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. I mean, I hate to say this, but uh, this pandemic has actually been um, very helpful to romantic love. I mean, it's a horrible experience. I've never had, nobody's ever had the experience of the world shutting down. (laughs) And we are not built for 24-7. I mean, I'm an anthropologist for millions of years. We did not stay shut inside for day in, day out for months. So, but what what has happened is we have a new stage in the dating process has emerged called video chatting. You know, prior to this pandemic, people met on the internet. And by the way, that's all these sites are is introducing sites. They're not dating sites. All they do is introduce you. Uh, You know, when you meet in person, you smile the way you always did. You laugh the way you always did. You parade and and expect the other person the way you always did. So all they are is introducing sites. So anyway, before the pandemic, people met on the internet and then they went out and met in person. And now there's this new intermediate stage called video chatting. And I did a national study with Match last July in the middle of the pandemic. We do not poll the Match members. This is a national representative sample of singles based on the U.S. Census. And we have data on over 5,000 Americans every year, actually. We've got uh, data on 50,000 Americans now because we've been doing it for 10 years. But anyway, the bottom line is we're seeing the emergence of this new dating uh, phase called video chatting. And what singles are telling us is that they are having much longer conversations, of course, they've got more time. They're having much more meaningful conversations with much more honesty, uh, much more transparency, and much more self disclosure. And self disclosure, academics have been able to prove, really um, pushes you towards intimacy. So we're seeing more intimacy from meeting on the internet. Uh, there's less. Um, <clears throat> focus on looks, both your looks and a potential partner's looks, and much more focused now on um, whether this person uh, is fully employed and whether they are financially stable. So it really is um, intentional dating. Uh, people are much more looking for a long-term uh, committed partnership. Uh, bad boys, bad girls are out, and <laughs> long-term commitment is in. That's What's really interesting to me also is that um, when we polled uh, people on this, those who really were act- very actively doing the video-, video dating, 50% of them had fallen in love with somebody. I'm not surprised. Wait, what? Then- over, over Zoom? How does that work? easily you know (laughs) 
I mean, the bottom line is, you know, the uh, um, I and my colleagues have put over 100 people into a brain scanner and studied the brain circuitry of romantic love. And as it turns out, this is a basic brain system, like the anger system or the fear system. You know, you can get mad instantly if you get insulted, or or you can get terrified instantly if you, you know, you see a New York cab coming towards you. Um, and you can fall in love instantly. And what's really important, you know, they do call it love at first sight. Sure. And what video chatting is enabling us to do is see the person, the way they smile, the way they hold their body, the way they really dress, their background, where they live, um, all kinds of things that can trigger the brain circuitry uh, for romance. That is so fascinating. And it does make sense in some ways, because if you're trying to connect with somebody in a crowded bar or a restaurant, there's so many other distractions. And, and, and probably this, in, this video chatting brings that, it strips away all the distractions. So, yeah. and I love the way you talked about intentional love and intentional um, kind of interactions over Zoom. How, how do, are people moving it off of Zoom though? What's going on? Like, you know, we don't have data on people moving it off of, uh, of Zoom at this point, but just looking around, I think everybody's getting so frustrated. And of course the vaccine uh, has been, um, you know, more and more people are taking the vaccine. People will go out and date again in person. I mean, we are mammals. I mean, we are built to try to, you know, to, to see people in person. But I honestly think we're going to continue to be much more careful. And I, what I really think is that, you know, with video chatting, sex is off the table. You don't have to decide whether you're going to kiss or hold hands or how you're going to handle that. And money is off the table with video chatting. You don't have to decide whether you're going to go to a very fancy bar or whether you're going to spend very little just in, in a coffee house. So um, I do think, and I we've got data on it at, at Match, that um, that um, singles are using video chatting as a vetting process uh, to decide whether they want to go out on that first date. And so we're going to see much more meaningful first dates. We're going to see fewer first dates because um, people are going to get rid of what they don't want <laughs> before they go out. Um, and by the time they do go out, they've already had their meaningful conversations. They've already decided, well, I wouldn't mind kissing her or him. Ah, geez, I wouldn't mind spending a little bit more money and more time on it. I wouldn't mind getting dressed up and spending my time and effort to meet this person. So I think we're going to see fewer dates. Um, as people proceed to go out in person, but I think they're going to be much more meaningful and, frankly, much more relaxed. We're going to be kissing fewer frogs. <laughs> I love that. We're all for kissing fewer frogs. But this is such an <laughs> this is such an optimistic, uh, you know, look at at, at dating because it, you know it really. I love we, the way you talk about intentionality. That you talk about people having more meaningful connections. And it's wonderful to hear that even when we're essentially housebound or sort of sheltering in place, that there's still the opportunity for intimacy. There's still the opportunity for meaningful connections. And it, I, you know, I'm just, it feels respect even more. I mean, what else do you have to do? I mean, in the past, we were getting up early. We were getting ourselves all dressed and showered and commuting and getting to the office and most of a lot of people anyway. And, uh, you know, and then after work, one was going to see family and friends and whatever. And we have more time. In fact, you know, uh, Match is calling this a, a dating renaissance. All of these dating sites are booming at the moment. They are booming because people have the time. Uh, they need to have these interactions. Um, the, you know, I mean, Cupid 
is killing COVID. (laughs) Cupid is alive and well. (laughs) That is wonderful. So talk to me a little bit about brain scans. You mentioned that you had, you know, with colleagues had done brain scans on on the brain. And it's interesting. One of the women who was on my show a few shows ago, Dr. Anita Sadati, uh, who was talking about uh, sexual health and libido and arousal was saying that, you know, arguably the brain is the biggest, um, you know, driver of sexual interest in in uh, people. Can you tell us a little bit about that, you know, in terms of uh, the biology of love and why we're attracted? And if we're in a long-term partnership, can that be maintained? Okay. Well, first of all, just about the brain. You know, I, first of all, I've been able to establish something that's actually pretty obvious, but anyway, that we've evolved um, three basic brain systems for mating and reproduction. One is the sex drive, driven largely by testosterone. The second is feelings of intense romantic love, what we've discovered in the brain, driven largely by the dopamine system. And the third brain system is attachment, that sense of calm and security you can feel with a long-term partner. They all play a role. I mean, sex drive gets you out there looking for a whole range of partners. You can have sex with somebody you're not in love with. Uh, Romantic love enables you to focus your mating energy on just one person at a time. And attachment enables you to stick with this person uh, at least long enough for for a while, but sometimes for your life. And that's driven by the oxytocin system in the brain. So these are three different brain systems. They operate together. Um, It doesn't always start with sex. Some people fall madly in love with somebody they've never kissed and then get into bed with them. Some people have a deep attachment to somebody uh, long term and then things happen, times change, and then they fall madly in love with this person, then they have sex, etc. So bottom line is these are three brain systems and the one that I wanted to figure out was romantic love. Other people have really studied the sex drive uh, uh, and and the attachment system. So, and by the way, I mean people pine for love, they live for love, they kill for love, and they die for love. One of the most powerful brain systems the human creature has ever evolved. So, bottom line is, I figured, well, got to be something going on in the brain. As a matter of fact, when I wrote my first academic paper on this, some of the peer reviewers uh, said, "Oh, you can't study romantic love; it's part of the supernatural." And I thought to myself, "Wait a minute here, you know, anger is not part of the supernatural, fear is not part of the supernatural. Why would this be part of the supernatural?" So anyway, so I began to put people into the brain scanner who were madly in love. And what I did first is I interviewed them. I mean, these scanners are expensive and time-consuming, so I had to make sure they were really in love. So gave them a lot of questionnaires and asked them a lot about their uh, love love lives. And, you know, people who are madly in love will happily talk to you your ear off about (laughs) (laughs) that was no problem anyway get them in the machine we get them out of the machine and we analyze the data and as it turns out when you're madly in love or rejected in love or in love long term those are three different studies that we did um there's activity in a tiny little factory near the base of the brain called the ventral tegmental areas or the VTA. And what that area does is it makes dopamine a natural stimulant and sends that stimulant to many brain regions. So this is what gives you the elation, the giddiness, the euphoria, the focus, the motivation of intense romantic love. And what astonished me 
well, first of all, I was thrilled we could find it. I, I thought we would, but because uh, it's a pretty dramatic feeling. But nevertheless, nobody had ever done it, so that was important. Um, but what I ended up finding, I had thought that love was uh, romantic love was an emotion, sure. or a whole series of emotions from from you know from A to Z. But actually, it's a drive. It's a it it the factory. The VTA lies way at the base of the brain, near the factory that orchestrates thirst and hunger. Wow. Thirst and hunger keep you alive today. Romantic love drives you, drives you to to seek out a partner and send your DNA into tomorrow. So I call this a survival mechanism. Indeed, it is a survival mechanism that enables us and has for millions of years to drive us to fall in love, form a partnership, and send our DNA into tomorrow. So I'm not surprised. I mean, you know, love counts. I mean, what you're trying to seek is life's greatest prize, which is a mating partner. And it's a very powerful drive. I mean, what people will do for love. I mean, look at all the artifacts of it. I mean, not only myths and legends and songs and dances, but I mean, how about ballets and operas and symphonies and and theater and movies and sitcoms and and cards and letters and therapists and holidays for <laughs> sake. I mean, we're deluged by this basic human drive, the drive to love. It's embedded in every fabric of your life. You're so right. But I'm fascinated by what you said about how it's sort of a DNA imperative. So can romantic love exist once you've realize that imperative, you know, once you've made it maybe and had children, you know, does romantic love fade away? Or is it something that, you know, because this show, I'm 51, and my listeners are all, you know, sort of north of 40 something. Uh, does romantic love fade? Or can it endure? Um, Katie, first of all, thanks for asking that question. Nobody's ever asked it. I just think it's really important. I remember I was writing my book, um, uh, Why We Love, and then my most recent book, I mean, I've written a lot of them, but uh, Anatomy of Love. And I sat, I remember sitting at my desk and thinking, why would this brain system continue to occur after your reproductive years are over? What is the point? Now, nobody's ever addressed that before or since. And I just sat there and I began to think about it. And I said, well, you know, romantic love is very healthy for you. When you're madly in love, uh, you tend to lose weight. Um, you tend to really focus on somebody. You, you, it gives you optimism. It gives you energy. It gives you focus. It gives you motivation. It makes you happy. It drives you to have sex with the person, and, and sex is very good for the body. Uh, uh, it leads to attachment, which is, is, is security. And I began to think, okay, well, for millions of years, you're traveling around in these little hunting and gathering groups. They did go through menopause at around age 50, 51. We know that now. And um, what would be the point of having this brain system survive after reproductive years are over? And I began to think, well, it gives you a lot of health benefits. I mean, as I say, the optimism, the energy, the focus, the motivation drives you to have sex with the person. That's really good for you. It gives you a secure partner, but it also makes you a better functioning member of society. I mean, if if you're just glum and moping about and don't see any point in dancing and singing, etc., I mean, it's not good for the social group. But um, if you are happily ensconced with somebody, you're going to be a more productive member of society. Relationships are very important. Relationships, happy relationships are very good for you. Some data shows that you can live five to seven years longer if you are in a happy partnership. Isolation kills. 
uh, unhappiness, unhappy people tend to get, uh, you know, d d diseases, more diseases faster and die sooner. So the bottom line is I do think that romantic love evolved and remained active after reproductive years are over simply so that you could be not only a happier person and not only making somebody else happier, but simply being a much more productive group member. And so that's what I ended up writing down that day at my desk when I was trying to fill in that section of my book, uh, Why We Love. That makes so much sense to me. And, you know, I, I've been married for, um, you know, I'm embarrassed. Like, I have to do some quick mental math. I've been married of like, you know, north of 20 something years. And, you know, my kids are, are older and, you know, beginning to, to fly the nest. And I'm, you know, I'm still in love with my husband, um, which Isn't that great. Yeah, it is. It is great. But, um, you know, I'm curious for, for people who are looking to nurture love in their lives, you know, um, is there a difference between men and women? Is it something that uh, does biology differ around this topic? The answer is simple. It's no. Uh, I mean, men express their love differently. But I want to go back. Don't let me forget to go back to talk to about long-term love and why you're still in love with your husband. Because we did put uh, uh, 15 people like you into the brain scanner. Well, I'll go there first. Yeah, tell us. Uh, you know, I mean, older people kept on coming into the lab and saying, I'm still in love with her, and or I'm still in love with him. Not just loving, but in love with the with your partner. And, um, and Americans don't believe that can happen. And so we decided we would put people who were in their 50s and 60s, like you, into the uh, brain scanner and see if this basic brain system for romantic love became active. And indeed, it did. You can remain in love long term. Got to pick the right person, which is, of course, something else I've studied. But uh, but you, you have to pick the right person. But you can remain in love long term. What we found is uh, activity in the same brain region um, uh, the ventral tegmental area became active in the scanner when they looked at a photograph of their sweetheart, uh, their long-term partner. The, all of these people were in love an average of 21 years, like you. Um, all of them, almost all of them had, had uh, you know, grown children like you. And uh, they were still madly in love with their partner. And in fact, then I did a study with Match and I asked, um, we did not study Match members once again. We studied a group of, I think it was 1,500 uh, people who were in long-term marriages. And I asked a lot of questions, but one of them was, would you remarry? the person that you're currently married to, and 81% said yes. I and, love that. That's yeah, fantastic. I, yeah, and I, uh, yeah, got to get gotta get the right person. So how do you do that? Because you said, you know, there, there are ways of thinking about that. So for people who are listening right now who maybe never yet connected with somebody or perhaps have gone through a divorce and are hoping to find, you know, a second act love, what, what would your advice be? Get on the internet. I mean, seriously, just get on the internet. It's work. I mean, I, I would not fool anybody. It is work. That's the primary way these days that people um, uh, meet. You know, I've, I've done a national study with Match for the last 10 years. It's called Singles in America. Every year we poll 5,000 Americans. As I mentioned, I, uh, we don't poll the Match members. It's a national representative sample of singles based on the U.S. Census. So it's real science. And as it turns out, Every single year, more people met their last first date on the internet than they did through a friend. For example, 2017 is one of the, <laughs> that I happen to remember. 40% of singles met their last first date on the internet. Only 25% met through a friend, and less than 10% met um, 
um, or at church, uh, at school, at work. Uh, in a, uh, This past year, only 2% met their last birth date in a bar. So it's internet dating. And the reason that that is important to people who are dating now is I did a study, once again, a national study, of people who date on the internet as opposed to off the internet. Not match members, just those who dated on any site on the internet as opposed to off the internet. And as it turns out, people who date on the internet are more likely to be um, uh, fully employed, uh, more likely to be have higher education, and more likely to be looking for a long-term commitment. And actually, a new study just came out, University of Chicago, showing, showing that people who date on the internet are less likely to divorce. So uh, it is the place to go. There's a pile of different sites. Uh, the site that uh, Match has, it's a subsidiary called Our Time. It is for uh, people over the age of 50. I don't work with that site, but I'd love to do it. Um, and um, a lot of older people are on Match, too. So I just met a guy actually last night who met, I don't know quite how old he was, but he was certainly middle-aged, um, who met um, through video chatting on on Match, actually, uh, three months ago, and they just moved in. So it's all possible, but you got to work the system. You know, I mean, I'm, as you know, I mean, I'm 75. I mean, I got married six months ago, so, <laughs> and I'm madly in love with them too. So um, I, I love that. I will continue to be, I'm positive of that, uh, but, because uh, he's such a great guy. But anyway, um, uh, uh, the internet, I didn't meet him on the internet. Um, Match would have loved it if I'd met somebody on the internet, uh, but uh, that didn't happen. But I do uh, remember reading about this actually in the New York Times because the New York Times did a big, you know, wedding coverage when you did get married because you are widely considered and recognized to be one of the nation's foremost experts on love and, and you found love later in life. Isn't that amazing? I did not solicit that. They, they, I have friends there and somebody discovered it and <clears throat> and the Today Show did it. I was touched. I was so touched. But anyway, yes, um, they're, they they celebrate the fact that a 75-year-old can, can actually be madly in love and happily in love and actually walking down the aisle. So that that's, I really actually, it's very interesting, Katie, because I, yeah, I've studied love for 50 years. I mean, I've studied in 80 cultures around the world. I've studied the brain circuitry. I've studied the evolution. I've studied the, the brain circuitry of personality and why you're drawn to one person rather than another. So I've studied gen- all of that. But I never really emotionally figured out why you would marry. I had had three very long, happy, live-in partnerships with men, but I had never had any interest in marrying them. And um, I thought to myself, well, what difference does it make? I mean, you know, I, 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 I was devoted to the people. I had every intention of staying with them until it didn't work out. And uh, uh, what difference would marriage make? And guess what? Last summer on July 21st when I married him, I figured it out. It is different marrying somebody. As I said to him, what is the difference? I said, I married a guy called John Tierney. Um, he wrote in the New York Times for 22 years, but that's not why New York Times chose this uh, story. But anyway, um, I said to him, I said, what is the difference? I'm trying to put out what is the difference between being married and just a long-term lover. And he looked at me and said, it's richer and deeper. Oh. And he is right. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Do you agree? Of course, I you've been totally married agree. I've been married. Yeah. yeah. 
I, you know, I agree. I, there's, there's something so beautiful about um, being willing to be committed to somebody and kind of linking your fate together and, and, and choosing each other. I think it's really choosing and uh, to be chosen feels so special. Um, I still, I'm, I'm obsessed with this marriage. I look at every man's hands to see if he's married and everyone I look at everybody's hands and I have a new sense of admiration for them. And I finally get it. I finally feel that deep cosmic connection and willingness to say, you know, all the others are not in the ballpark. I mean, I'm done with the others. This is the one for me. It's a, it has a sweetness. Uh, it has a beauty to it. And by the way, you know, as an anthropologist, you know, 97% of mammals do not pair up to rear their young. Only 3% do. I mean, if somebody came down from Mars or even asked a chimpanzee what's unusual about people, first thing they would probably say is, you guys decide to pair up. We don't bother with any of that. You know, uh, uh, you, 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 it's a species that is a pair-bonding species. Now, we also divorce. We also remarry. Uh, a lot of people have what I call serial pair bonding or serial partnerships. And I read a whole book, I wrote a whole book on why we do that, why divorce is, is prevalent around the world and remarriage, of course. But the bottom line is it's a beautiful thing. Marriage is a lovely, it's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. So why do some people stray? You know, what is, uh, you know, some of it would maybe seems obvious. There's lack of sexual interest in their partner or they've been, the, the bonds have been frayed by, by you know, life and its choppy waters. But um, why do people stray? Maybe I, I don't fully understand. And two, if people want to make sure that's not going to happen, what would you advise? Well, uh, if you don't want it to happen, pick the right person. I mean, it's as square as that. Um, and then continue to keep this relationship interesting. Uh, you know, there's three ways to... Uh, uh, you know, one wants to keep all three of the th these three basic brain systems cooking, um, you know, have sex regularly, uh, you know, that drives up the testosterone system and makes you want to have more sex. And uh, people say, well, I don't have time. Well, you got time to go out on Saturday night. You got time to go shopping. You got time to play with your children. You have time for sex. You can schedule it if necessary. Um, but, um, a sex is very good for you. It's not only good for the muscles and the skin and the bladder and the genital tissues, and but it's also good for the brain. Uh, it's good for memory and and um, uh, it, it, it's it's certainly good. It drives up the dopamine system, can sustain feelings of romantic love with orgasm. Actually, a, a flood of oxytocin gives you feelings of deep attachment. So, sex is good for you. I ought to keep uh, keep at that. Um, to keep up the romance, do novel things together. Novelty drives up the dopamine system and, and gives you romance. This is why vacations are so romantic, because it's so novel, uh, driving up the dopamine system. And if you want to sustain the attachment, you know, uh, you know, um, stay, stick together, you know, hold hands, uh, kiss, get rid of the armchairs and sit together on the couch to watch television. Any kind of cuddling or, or physical touch drives up the oxytocin system in the brain. So you really want to keep all of these uh, basic uh, brain systems in cooking, sex drive, romantic love, and feelings of deep attachment. And what's interesting, I haven't talked yet about uh, adultery, but I'll get there. Um, what's interesting to me about long-term happiness in a partnership, we put these long-term happy people uh, happily in love uh, couples into not, individuals who are in a long-term happy marriage into the brain scanner. And we found 
the basic brain regions associated with long-term happiness. Now, now psychologists say all kinds of things about how to make a long-term happy partnership. I mean, don't be critical, um, uh, don't be defensive, uh, don't stonewall and pretend it isn't going on. Uh, um, uh, I don't, uh, but anyway, all good, all good. But this is what the brain says. This is what happens in a long-term happy partnership. Three brain regions become active. A brain region linked with empathy, a brain region linked with controlling your own stress and your own emotions, and a brain region linked um, with um, overlooking the negative, what I call positive illusions. Overlook what you what you what 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 bothers you and focus on what's great about this relationship so um we can remain in long-term happy partnerships but anyway you asked about adultery positive illusions i absolutely love that but before we move on to adultery because i definitely do want to get there tell me a little bit is like is positive illusions sort of like reframing things like looking at something and and sort of altering the way that you react to it yeah absolutely now, for example, with my uh, new husband, he's a little higher on the serotonin system than I am. He follows the rules. Um, and uh, rule following is in a brain system, the serotonin system in the brain. I call these people builders. He's not a builder, but he's very high on the dopamine system like I am. He's novelty seeking and curious and creative. But the bottom line is um, he follows the rules uh, more than I do. And <laughs> we were walking along, I don't know, it was a few months ago before COVID, and um, we were walking down into this little village, well, right in the middle of the Bronx, and um, little area. And and um, I said, well, let's cut over this, you know, this uh, area here. And he said, oh no, no, there's a sign here. You you can't uh, walk on the grass. <laughs> I did it. There hadn't been any grass there for 25 years. It was rocks <laughs> and. Weeds. I mean, it wasn't even weeds. It was dirt. <laughs> he didn't want to walk on the grass. And I thought to myself, okay, well, he doesn't. It's a little silly now. But that same rule following is probably means he's going to be um, faithful to me. He's going to follow those rules. You know, it's interesting that your brain is really you know, organizing these sort of decisions for you in ways that you don't even realize. Like you're, you're, you know, you're lucky enough to have found a, a wonderful husband who's creative and engaging and, you know, up for new experiences, but also is wired to be committed. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, I mean, some people are wired to be committed and um, they're in a perfectly horrible relationship and they end up being attachment junkies. And staying way too long. So, you know, all of these brain systems can be for good or evil. But, uh, the, but the bottom line is, yeah, we've evolved four very broad styles of thinking and behaving linked with the dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen systems in the brain. And I've studied, uh, oh, 100,000 people, actually. Uh, as it turns out, um, you know, um, we all express some of the traits in all four of these systems, but uh, people who are very expressive of the traits in the dopamine system in the brain, I call them explorers, they're drawn to each other. Um, they tend to be novelty-seeking, risk-taking, curious, creative, spontaneous, and energetic people, and they're naturally drawn to each other. And, and he and I are very similar in that way. Uh, I mean, he's a journalist, he's gone all over the world, he writes books, I mean, he's an exciting man. Um, and, um, uh, and people who are very high in the serotonin system are drawn to each other either. I call these people builders. Mike Pence, uh, Mitt Romney, 
Uh, these people are traditional. They're conventional. They follow the rules. They respect authority. Um, they're concrete thinkers. They're cautious people. Um, they probably like rules and schedules, etc. And they tend to be religious. These are all traits that are in the uh, serotonin system in the brain. And these people are also drawn to people like themselves, other builders, other people who are very expressive of the traits in the serotonin system. People who are very high on the testosterone system go for their opposite, um, those who are high on the estrogen system. So um, I think that actually uh, Hillary and Bill Clinton are, are a good example. Hillary is the more high testosterone. I mean, I think these people um, tend to be analytical, logical, direct, decisive, tough-minded, skeptical, good at things like math, engineering, computers, uh, music. Uh, music is very spatial, very structural. And these people go for their opposite, the high estrogen negotiators, I call them. Uh, uh, people who, oh, they see the big picture, um, they're holistic thinkers, contextual thinkers, they're imaginative, can deal well with ambiguity, very good at reading posture, gesture, tone of voice, very trusting, very what we call pro-social people. So we're all um, uh, expressive of all four of these styles of thinking and behaving, but we express some more than others. And indeed, my husband and I, um, that word husband, I'm still getting used to it. <laughs> uh, it's a beautiful word. Anyway, um, everybody takes these things for granted, I think, um, but I certainly don't. Uh, I mean, you're probably so used to it. But anyway, the bottom line is he and I are both very high on the dopamine system. As I said, we're both uh, novelty seeking and curious and hopefully creative. We both uh, write books, etc. So let's dive into adultery. I know you mentioned that earlier. So we've talked about the different sort of styles of brain um, organization that might make us attracted to a certain type of person. But what makes us stray? Is it when there's a disconnect between your brain chemistry and who you should be with? Or does something else tend to send things off the rails? There's all kinds of things that send uh, off the rails. I've looked at adultery in 42 cultures around the world. Everywhere in the world, um, uh, people, some people do cheat. Even, in fact, throughout the animal community, I mean, uh, you know, um, most other animals don't form partnerships, so they, cheating is not in the game. But a lot of birds form partnerships because they've got to. Somebody's going to sit on that nest and that individual will starve to death unless they get somebody to help feed them. So a lot of birds form partnerships, uh, pair bonds. They are monogamous and they cheat too. So why, <laughs> is it, why is it that people cheat? Well, you know, if you ask them, there's all kinds of, of, of psychological reasons. People will say, well, I wanted to get caught and break up. I wanted to get caught and dissolve the partnership. I wanted to supplement the partnership. I wanted to solve a sex problem. I wanted to, um, you know, have a walk on the wild side. I got lonely when my partner was out of town. Uh, uh, I travel a lot. I needed you know, something in another place, etc. All kinds of psychological explanations. But the bottom line is, why, I mean, I'm a Darwinist, I'm an evolutionist, uh, I mean, why would we do this over and over when you can, when you can die? I mean, you can lose your family, you can lose your friends, you can lose your money, you can lose your status, and you can get diseases and die. Why would people <laughs> be adulterous? And so, so this is the Darwinian explanation, the base explanation. So going back a million years, if a man had one wife or one solid partnership, and he went over the hill hunting and 
met another woman and ended up having two babies with her, and he had two babies at home, he would double the amount of DNA he sent into tomorrow. So men who were adulterous had more children, sent more of their DNA into tomorrow, sending along their propensity for adultery. But why would women be adulterous? I mean, women can't have a new baby every single time she has sex with somebody. But um, she might have one more child and add to, uh, um, you know, have a child with different DNA, which is sort of adaptive. Um, but also she could have an insurance policy. If, I mean, if her husband was eaten by a lion, she may have somebody to step in and help her with the children that she's got. Um, and... Um, you know, when she's traveling, which they did all the time, women, they would go to other hunting and gathering groups and travel with their friends or relatives for a period of time. If they had lovers in other places, uh, they would have more protection, they would have more meat, they would have more security. Uh, and so through millions of years of forming a partnership with one person and having babies and also going out, sneaking around and either having babies or support from other individuals, uh, passing along this human propensity uh, to cheat. So are people more likely to cheat when they're younger and then they're in their reproductive years than they are when they're older and in their, you know, settling down years? Last time that I studied this uh, among the young uh, people under the age of 40, women had, had just begun to cheat just as much as men. Ooh. And that's probably because we're leaving the agrarian beliefs behind that a woman's place is in the home, that a man is the head of the household. Women are now in the job market, which, by the way, is the world's largest and most important uh, current trend. It's not technology. Technology is just enabling us to do what we've always done, but in, in a more efficient manner. What is really changing is women piling into the job market and cultures around the world, the rise of the double income family, et cetera. So um, among people uh, under the age of 40, the last time I looked at this data, could have changed a little, uh, women were just as adulterous as men. Why? Because they can afford to be. Uh, I mean, um, people now are marrying for companionship. Women don't no longer really have to marry for money. In fact, when I last asked, only 14% of women in America would marry uh, for financial stability. You shared, Helen, you shared a startling statistic with me on the pre-call about um, who are the choosier sex partners, right? It, it, yeah. Can you share that with us right now? Because this is sort of what you're leading towards, I think. Oh, yeah. Uh, women are the picky sex, you know. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I've been trying to tell this to the women's magazines for 40 years. They detect, you know, men fall in love faster than women do because they're so visual. They fall in love more often. Um, men, when they meet somebody uh, that they're in love with, they want to introduce them to friends and family sooner. Men want to move in sooner. And men have more intimate conversations with their wives than women do with their husbands because women have their intimate conversations with their girlfriends. So, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, men are the more fragile sex. And in fact, men are two and a half times more likely to kill themselves when a relationship is over. So, and there's this notion of like older women sort of being cougars and, and maybe being a little bit desperate. But actually, I think statistically you shared with me that, you know, women over the age of 60 tend to be the choosiest in their sexual partners, which is Absolutely. interesting. Yeah. You know, 76% uh, of women today will not marry a man who is 10 or more years younger. Won't do it. 51% of, of women are perfectly happy making more money uh, than their partner. Um, and, um, what's interesting is what you're referring to is this study that I did. It's so interesting. I, I created two questions and the questions were, 
would you make a long-term commitment to somebody who had everything you were looking for, but you were not in love with them? And the second question is, would you make a long-term commitment commitment to somebody who had everything you were looking for, but you did not find them sexually attractive? The least likely to compromise on sex and love were women over 60. It's the young that have to compromise. And the most, the ones that compromised the most were um, young men, men in their 20s. Reason being, you know, I'm, and my little cousin is a perfect example. He said, you know, Helen, you know, when I married my wife, she wasn't the best I had, I've ever had in bed. Um, um, but, uh, and I really wasn't as crazily in love with her as I have been with other women. But she's gonna. She's very helpful for my career. Uh, she's gonna be wonderful with our children, and this is the right thing to do. So it's the young that are the ones that are more inclined to compromise. Now I must say that uh, you know I I I've written this article called Slow Love. The young these days are pretty picky, both men and women. I must say that they are. You know they used to marry in their early twenties. Now they're marrying in their late twenties. This long period of pre-commitment. The young are serious. I'm very impressed with the young. They're really serious about uh, about about who they choose, and so are older people. I mean I'm older. And in fact, uh, you know, there was a man who I probably could have married, and he lived in, I don't know, another part of the country. And um, he was a great guy, but uh, I was not in love with him, and I did not find him sexually attractive. Am I going to move to, you know, Arizona uh, (laughs) with a man who I'm not in love with and don't find sexually attractive? Forget about it. No, of course not. Oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. I think the young might try it. They might try it. They're like, the weather's warm and, you know, what's wrong with Arizona? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Helen, this has been so much fun. I have I have learned so much, for, you know, so many fascinating statistics. And I feel just optimistic about long-term commitment. I feel optimistic about love and dating in the time of COVID. You know, I, th- I think sometimes the media gives us a... Uh, it tells us a bad story about what it means to age and, and you know, adultery and things falling apart and the, and the death of love. And you have made me feel more optimistic about about it all. Thank you so much. Before we wrap and move on, I, I just want to ask for people who are curious about this topic, who might want to, to know more about this, Where is there a re- resource or a tool or a particular book that you would direct them to? Well, my most recent book is Anatomy of Love, second edition. And that really goes through everything. Uh, uh, if you really want to know about why you... Um, fell for him or her or how to make sure you sustain a good marriage. I would suggest my other book, why him, why her uh, third book that I wrote called um, why we love really explains romantic love or uh, well, two websites, um, www.theanatomyoflove where you can take my questionnaire uh, and my new website, uh, which I hope is going to be up uh, uh, by the time this airs, just HelenFisher.com. I will link to all of your books and your two websites in the show notes so people can continue to follow you and your work. It has totally been a pleasure having you as a guest today. Thank you so much, Helen. Thank you, Katie. This wraps A Certain Age, a show for women over 50 who are aging without apology. And this also wraps our February shows and our month-long theme of love. All February long, A Certain Age features guests with insights and tools for cultivating love and self-care. In episode five, Dr. Anita Sadati coaches us on the three key factors to maintain vibrant sexual health. Episode six, 
Christine Mason talks intimate self-care and launching and scaling businesses. Author and New York Times science writer Jacqueline Morose walks us through the intricacies of female friendships in show seven, and the fabulous Dr. Helen Fisher has demystified the science of love and given us so many nuggets of wisdom as we look at romantic love in our own lives. Join me next week as we kick off March. We're diving into life's speed bumps, setbacks, and deep losses. We'll talk divorce, illness, death, and tools for navigating choppy waters. See you next time. And until then, age boldly, beauties.